Hello, this is Josh. And for this episode, I am going to offer something of an update, something of a personal witness. We will be continuing with A Sunlit Absence. The next chapter is on embracing boredom. Here in this transition from the end of summer and into the fall, I would like to use this episode as an opportunity to accomplish a couple goals. Chiefly, I'm interested in connecting with any of you who might still be interested in participating in the Invitation School of Prayer, even from a distance. We have a good cohort assembled to begin here our eight-month journey in Holland. If anyone else in the West Michigan area is interested in participating in the School of Prayer in person, please reach out to me. I have been devising some ways to use our technology to be able to, I believe, present the School of Prayer in a fruitful format for anyone who is abroad. So here in this transitional time into the fall, as I think about what the invitation will be able to offer, I'd like to offer this as an update episode to let you know about the form, the shape, the themes, the tone of what the School of Prayer is, and specifically right now as we're looking toward early November and the election and all of the current political discourse, the campaigning, the protests, even the riots, I have identified some ways to integrate this question of racial justice and contemplative spirituality into the core integrative the wholeness of what the invitation and the school of prayer are about. So for those of you who are near or far, who cannot practically engage in this eight-month journey of the school of prayer, I want to offer this episode as a kind of prayerful meditation for us to join together to think about the connection between what Father Laird has taught us this summer, that silence is justice and that silence also creates in us a non-reactionary presence. As Father Laird will say, the opposite of the contemplative life is not the active life, but the reactive life. So in terms of some more review, what we're saying is that as we move closer to God, we find our orientation in the love and the silent presence and in the silent being of God. This formation orders our affections, it orders our attention, and yet the next stage is an experience of disorientation, that as we see more of ourselves, as we see more of the world around ourselves and experience God's love and truth in that context, we can then see the parts of ourselves that further need healing. So. As we've said this summer, why would we practice contemplative prayer when black people continue to be shot by police? The inner stillness of contemplative prayer allows me access to see 
how I am part of the problem. So I can say that in the last five months, I have learned more about the questions of race and justice than I have in the previous six years of reading and serving in a correctional facility in Muskegon, Michigan. I posted a blog a couple days ago that summarizes my journey of what I am discovering between the connection of contemplative prayer and how to speak truth to power. I believe this is one of the most important things I've ever written, especially as it reflects the invitation as a nonprofit and as it springs out of the mission of the invitation. So what I'd like to do here in this update is to offer you that writing in a meditative format. Before I do that, I would like to share a bit more about the School of Prayer, and I'd like to introduce my writing with some excerpts from Dr. King. So yes, I am always guilty of trying to do too much in an episode, but I am like a fire hydrant right now with so much hope and goodness, and I can't not want to share these discoveries with you. So yes, again, what is the School of Prayer? This will be the second year that I offer the School of Prayer. We began it last year with a group of eight people. You can find a video where one of the participants offers some personal testimony about the goodness of our time and how the Spirit taught and led us over that eight-month journey. The core structure of what I've designed is four months where we practice the same rule of life, how we pray each day when we fast, and the books that we both study and then listen to in a spiritual conversation to identify how to grow our practice so we do the same rule of life for the first four months while then writing and listening to each other, listening to God to write our own rule of life. And then in January, we spend the next four months living out, attempting to practice our own respective rules while continuing our reading, our spirituality of study, and especially as we continue to practice the humiliating discipline of confession, of when we fail to attain what we had hoped for in practicing our spiritual disciplines, because there is only so much growth we can have on our own. The greatest strides that we can have in our pursuit of God, of leaving behind the lesser things to put on the life of Christ, most of that growth comes through relationship, and that relationship is a humbling form of realizing our weaknesses and our failures, and then finding help and hope by learning from those exact failures. The Holland, Michigan cohort will be launched this month on the 19th of September with a half-day retreat, and then we will meet twice a month all the way through May, where we'll conclude with another half-day retreat on May 15th. 
And as I said, if you are someone who's interested in participating in this, who is abroad, reach out to me and we can figure out how to facilitate this for where you are. This podcast episode is being published in conjunction with a new video where I'm offering some updates about the scope and the shape and the tone of what the School of Prayer will be this year, especially in the context of this connective tissue that I'm suggesting here between contemplation and racism. You can also find on the website a more detailed prospectus of the School of Prayer. If you go to the resources page, you'll find another link to the School of Prayer. Last year, we had hosted one cohort here in Holland and then another cohort inside the prison where I started the year last September with a group of 25 of my incarcerated friends there. And of course, that prison practice had to come to an early end, just like everything else did in March. So again, before we dive into this essay that I published as a blog, I would like to invite you into a prayerful posture. So wherever you are and whatever you're up to, I invite you to slow your thoughts. Most of us are experiencing some form of trauma. The world at large is full of all kinds of noise. There's lots of sharp angles and edges, lots of dangerous pitfalls that we can fall into each day. It seems that our American practice continues to create more and more opportunities for us to separate and to divide from each other. And the questions of re-entering back into the work life and to the school in the midst of COVID-19 is also troubling, traumatic. So let's do our practice that we've been doing all summer with a Jesus prayer of simply speaking in our deepest self the sacred name of Jesus. So we breathe out the name of Jesus. And then we breathe in Jesus. At the beginning stage of contemplation is the gift of being present, being present to ourselves, present in our own minds, our own emotions, and our body. We say the name of Jesus, identifying any tension in our body. especially being attentive to our breath. Careful and gentle, slow, deep breath. And as we become more present to ourselves, we also allow ourselves to be present to the God who is nearer to us than we are to ourselves. We are simply acknowledging that Jesus has already been with us. 
breathing out the sacred name of Jesus. Breathing in Jesus. Amen. So I invite you into a further study, a prayerful contemplation and meditation. And instead of using Father Laird, we'll begin with some words from Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. I highly recommend his wonderful text, Strength to Love. It's a collection of his sermons. The first chapter opens for us a model of what a spirituality of study could look like. It's called A Tough Mind and a Tender Heart. And he points us to Matthew 10, 16. Be ye therefore as wise as serpents and harmless as doves. Dr. King is inviting us to think rigorously and yet on the other side to be able to love through our grasp and our firm convictions that we must integrate this truth and grace this rigorous mind, but yet also a soft-hearted love of our neighbor. For the context of the tough mind, he offers a warning that, if we consider, came from his experience in the 50s and 60s, is still very prophetic for us today when he actively warns against a soft-minded gullibility. Dr. King writes, This prevalent tendency towards soft-mindedness is found in man's unbelievable gullibility. Take our attitude toward advertisement. We are so easily led to purchase a product because a television or radio advertisement pronounces it better than any other. Advertisers have long since learned that most people are soft-minded and they capitalize on this susceptibility with skillful and effective slogans. This undue gullibility is also seen in the tendency of many readers to accept the printed word of the press as final truth. Few people realize that even our authentic channels of information, the press, the platform, and in many instances, the pulpit, do not give us objective and unbiased truth. Few people have the toughness of mind to judge critically and to discern the true from the false, the fact from the fiction. Our minds are constantly being invaded by legions of half-truths, prejudices, and false facts. One of the great needs of humankind is to be lifted above the morass of false propaganda. Later, 
Dr. King writes, The soft-minded man always fears change. He feels security in the status quo, and he has an almost morbid fear of the new. For him, the greatest pain is the pain of a new idea. An elderly segregationist in the South is reported to have said, quote, I have come to see now that desegregation is inevitable, but I pray, God, that it will not take place until after I die, end quote. The soft-minded person always wants to freeze the moment and hold life in the gripping yoke of sameness. Soft-mindedness often invades religion. This is why religion has sometimes rejected new truth with a dogmatic passion. Through edicts and bulls, inquisitions and excommunications, the church has attempted prorogue truth in place an impenetrable stone wall in the path of the truth-seeker. The historical philological criticism of the Bible is considered by the left-minded as blasphemous, and reason is often looked upon as the exercise of a corrupt faculty. Soft-minded persons have revised the Beatitudes to read, Blessed are the pure in ignorance, for they shall see God. Then Dr. King continues in part two of this essay. We must not stop with the cultivation of a tough mind. The gospel also demands a tender heart. Tough-mindedness without tender-heartedness is cold and detached, leaving one's life in a perpetual winter, devoid of the warmth of spring and the gentle heat of summer. What is more tragic than to see a person who has risen to the disciplined heights of tough-mindedness, but has at the same time sunk to the passionless depths of hard-heartedness. And here at the end of this essay, Dr. King offers us an integration of tough mind and tender heart in a way that I believe can give us lots of comfort and hope in a time such as ours today. Dr. King writes, At times, we need to know that the Lord is a God of justice, when slumbering giants of injustice emerge in the earth, we need to know that there is a God of power that can cut them down like the grass and leave them withering like the Greek herb. When our most tireless efforts fail to stop the surging sweep of oppression, we need to know that in this universe is a God whose matchless strength is a fit contrast to the sordid weakness of man. But there are also times when we need to know that God possesses love and mercy, when we are staggered by the chilly winds of adversity and battered by the raging storms of disappointment, and when through our folly and sin we stray into some destructive far country and are frustrated because of a strange feeling of homesickness. We need to know that there is someone who loves us, cares for us, understands us, 
and will give us another chance. When days grow dark and nights grow dreary, we can be thankful that God combines in His nature a creative synthesis of love and justice that will lead us through life's dark valleys and into sunlit pathways of hope and fulfillment. In chapter two of A Strength to Love, is titled Transformed Nonconformist. His thoughts are reflections on Romans 12:2. Be not conformed to this world, but be ye transformed by the renewing of your mind. He begins, Do not conform is difficult advice in a generation when crowd pressures have unconsciously conditioned our minds and feet to move to the rhythmic drumbeat of the status quo. Many voices and forces urge us to choose the path of least resistance and bid us never to fight for an unpopular cause and never to be found in a pathetic minority of two or three. He goes on to write, In spite of this prevailing tendency to conform, we as Christians have a mandate to be nonconformists. The Apostle Paul, who knew the inner realities of the Christian faith, counseled, Be not conformed to this world, but be ye transformed by the renewing of your mind. We are called to be people of conviction, not conformity, of moral nobility, not social respectability. We are commanded to live differently and according to a higher loyalty. Dr. King goes on to say, Many people fear nothing more terribly than to take a position that stands out sharply and clearly from the prevailing opinion. The tendency of most is to adopt a view that is so ambiguous that it will include everything and so popular that it will include everybody. Along with this has grown an inordinate worship of bigness we live in an age of jumboism, where men find security in that which is large and extensive. Big cities, big buildings, big corporations. This worship of size has caused many to fear being identified with a minority idea. Not a few men who cherish lofty and noble ideas hide them under a bush for fear of being called different. Many sincere white people in the South privately oppose segregation and discrimination, but they're apprehensive lest they be publicly condemned. Millions of citizens are deeply disturbed that the military-industrial complex too often shapes national policy, but they do not want to be considered unpatriotic. Countless loyal Americans honestly feel that a world body such as the United Nations should include even Red China, but they fear being called communist sympathizers. A legion of thoughtful persons recognizes 
that traditional capitalism must continually undergo change if our great national wealth is to be more equitably distributed, but they are afraid their criticisms will make them seem un-American. Numerous decent, wholesome young persons permit themselves to become involved in unwholesome pursuits that they do not personally condone or even enjoy because they are ashamed to say no when the gang says yes. How few people have the audacity to express publicly their convictions, and how many have allowed themselves to be, quote, astronomically intimidated, end quote. Blind conformity makes us so suspicious of an individual who insists on saying what he really believes that we recklessly threaten his civil liberties. If a man who believes vigorously in peace is foolish enough to carry a sign in a public demonstration, or if a southern white person, believing in the American dream of, of the dignity and worth of human personality, dares to invite a Negro into his home and join with him in his struggle for freedom, he is liable to be summoned before some legislative investigation body. He most certainly is a communist if he espouses the cause of human brotherhood. And to give you a sense of where this essay continues, in section 2, Dr. King begins with this sentence, Nowhere is the tragic tendency to conform more evident than in the church, an institution that has often served to crystallize, conserve, and even bless the patterns of majority opinion. So Dr. King gives us some vocabulary of when we are called to be prophetic speaking the truth to power, and also pastoral, and loving our neighbor, and loving our church, despite its inability to not just know, but also to live out truth and justice. And these two sides of truth, the prophetic and the pastoral, the grace and the truth, can also be described in terms of conformity and then individualism. If you are listening to the Invitation Podcast, you are no doubt someone who has experienced in life enough suffering and enough time to move beyond the limitations of conformity within your respective church practice, the worship tradition that you come from, to stretch and reach outside of your local church and your local network to find other nourishing vocabularies to go deeper with God. And that doesn't mean that we're saying anything ultimately critical or condemning of the church. What we're saying is that in your journey towards Christ, you are going to have to go away alone in your soul to discover your own personal, unique, and private form of prayer. And as we continue to stretch ourselves towards God, He will also heal and redeem and then reveal to us 
the larger, enormous extent of his love and character. And in this context, it is the love of Christ in the face of racism, or more boldly, in the face of white supremacy. So it's on the shoulders of Dr. King and what he has taught me that I hope the invitation as a podcast and as a nonprofit that extends into the prison can stand. As I have been reading Dr. King this summer to come to terms with what's happening in America, I find myself led to share now this essay of my own writing, which you can find as a blog on the website. I begin with some epigraphs from James Baldwin. History is not the past, it is the present. We carry our history with us. We are our history. The history of America is the history of the Negro in America, and it's not a pretty picture. What white people have to do is try and find out in their own hearts why it was necessary to have a N-word in the first place. Because I am not a N-word. I am a man. But if you think I'm a N-word, it means you need it. To awaken to the reality that there are two predominant stories of America, the story of the black man and the story of white America, this is the challenge ahead of us, no matter who we choose on November 3. This has been our challenge from the beginning. I'm going to direct my thoughts here to the specifics of the black man, even when I'm concerned for the experience of all black people, because it is the black man who's been so thoroughly villainized in our culture as depicted in the 1915 silent film, The Birth of a Nation. And it is the black man who keeps getting shot. We are concerned for Breonna Taylor, yet, quote, over the life course, about one in every thousand black men can expect to be killed by police. Women's lifetime risk of being killed by police is about 20 times lower than men's risk. ABC News. Who can claim that he is woke because there will always be more awakening ahead for each of us? I can't say that I am yet fully woke, but I can say that I'm in process. My words here may be guilty of virtue signaling, but moreover I attempt in my writing to invite others into the challenge of the critical journey, especially as it involves prayer and justice. The remaining energy to support Donald Trump by white Christians under the banner of law and order continues the storyline of white supremacy in America. These are heavy and likely hurtful words, and yet I earnestly offer these words out of love. Avoiding the confrontation between prayer and justice Christianity and racism 
would be an act of resignation, a surrender to despair, doubt, and cynicism. It is my deep faith in the Christ of the Church that compels me to share difficult words for a difficult conversation. This is the discipline of being in community, to move toward you in hope rather than away in condemnation. I have been in the humiliating process of dislodging the racist log from my own eye. As I see more clearly, I'm evangelical about wanting to share what I see. As a spiritual director, I'm honored to sit with people as truths move from abstract ideas to actionable, emotionally vivid realities. I get to watch people awaken. I've had this experience as a teacher and a pastor. I've witnessed students' eureka moments and parishioners maturing. Yet as a spiritual director, I sit with someone for an hour watching and listening to a much more particular depth of a person's inner being, the subtlest inner emotional and mental movements. I know how slow and even precarious awakening can be for a person, so I can give most of my white community the benefit of the doubt when it comes to their understanding of the black man's story in America. I have tangibly watched how difficult it is for a person to awaken to the height, depth, width, and breadth of the gospel truths that they already say they believe. I've seen how difficult it is for a person who calls herself Christian to move from the gospel as an idea to actively participating in the gospel as an ever-deepening, transforming, crucifying, and enlivening daily hope. So when it comes to the real and awful story of the black man in America, it is excruciatingly difficult for white people to even conceive that the black man has his own separate story, that that story has always been and still is a story of oppression. And of course, it's even more difficult for white people to understand how we are the central cause of the black man's suffering. White people have swept slavery, reconstruction, Jim Crow, redlining real estate, white flight and the abandonment of urban centers, the war on drugs, economic disparities, the school-to-prison pipeline, the injustices of our criminal justice system. Whites have swept this oppression into little boxes inside our heads and hearts. We keep the doors of these boxes closed with a variety of explanations and various levels of willful ignorance. This is the white supremacy we are still guilty of today. We may not be wearing hoods and burning crosses, but we are white supremacists when we continue to keep our hearts and minds actively ignorant of the story of our neighbor, the black man. This is my ego staying busy and preoccupied with my self-importance. I am self-important, 
I am supreme at the center of my universe. I'm unable to open myself and to be present to the suffering around me. I have no idea what a black person really goes through each day. My closed-hearted way of life is expressed through, projected through, my whiteness. I don't know any other way. But that doesn't excuse me as a Christian because I've given my life to the cross, to die to myself so that I can be filled with the life of Christ and love my black brother as myself. In his book, Breathing Underwater, Richard Rohr offers a Christian perspective on the 12 steps, and he begins with the truth that we are all addicts. What are we addicted to? Each of us is essentially addicted to our own way of seeing the world. All the culturally illicit addictions, drugs, sex, and rock and roll, these are means of keeping ourselves numb and closed so that our small way of seeing the world cannot be threatened. Staying on the internet too much, workaholism, shopping, and even do-goodism busyness can keep my heart and mind on one track, preoccupied, closed. What we can conclude is that we are addicted to being white and we have built our lives around the discipline of protecting our addiction to whiteness. Anything that threatens our white identity is criminal. Jesus' transforming work is an agonizing process of becoming less addicted to myself less addicted to my whiteness and to become more and more other focused so that love of God, love of the black man, and love of myself are all integrated into a freedom of wholeness. This is the only path that will lead to law and order. Decentering openness, a surrender of my ego powers, an embracing of those wild things I don't understand and can't control, surrender to a wild God and a world of beautifully wild possibilities. This is why Moby Dick, the whale, had hieroglyphics and wrinkles on his forehead. This is why Ishmael smokes in bed with Queequeg, the savage. This is why Huck and Jim were on a raft floating down the Mississippi. It's why Elvis stole rock and roll from Chuck Berry, why we love Michael Jackson and Michael Jordan, and why white kids in the suburbs listen to gangster rap. We want to love black America. We are already obsessed with black America, but we still want to keep them in their boxes, on that other side of town, on ESPN, out on the court or field, 
but not close enough to threaten our control. You may have heard early on in our quarantine the sentiment, let's not go back to normal, because if we go back to normal, we will not learn what COVID-19 is here to teach us. The restlessness of America placed America in a posture where we can pay better attention to the story of the black man, especially after the killing of George Floyd by a police officer. We have a new opportunity to draw close and love our black neighbors. Yes, the protests across the country have resulted in violence. Some of our neighbors are acting out. However, it is possible for us to not condone the violence while at the same time loving the black man enough to listen to what he is trying to tell us. To learn the long story behind why he's acting out. I recall a time with a former black Hope College student who seemed to be holding back and was conflicted while wanting to speak honestly with me. I encouraged him to come out with it, to say what he had to say. This was the first time I was introduced to the damned if you do, damned if you don't experience of black people. The student explained, quote, I can't afford to be an angry black man. No one wants an angry black man, end quote. My awakening since has to do with coming to terms with the reality that when a black man gets angry, he is labeled a thug and is criminalized. His anger proves to Americans addicted to their whiteness that the black man is the boogeyman, a monstrous threat to law and order. This is the reason behind the 13th Amendment, the reason why blacks had to sit at the back of the bus why they sometimes could only get food from the back of the restaurant. It's the reason why 40% of the United States prison population is black, even though blacks only make up 12% of our entire population. This is the reason why we made dividing lines between black and white neighborhoods and schools. It's why we then left for the suburbs, and why we won't pay the black man equal wages. This is why we are seeing a surge of support for Donald Trump. It's why anyone would confuse him for a defender of faith and a keeper of law and order. We are protecting our small, white world from the threat of the black man. And of course, James Baldwin says these things with the appropriate authority and with more precision. He says, quote, If any white man in the world says, Give me liberty or give me death, the entire world applauds. 
when a black man says exactly the same thing, he is judged a criminal and treated like one, and everything possible is done to make an example of this bad N-word, so there won't be any more like him, end quote. My steep learning curve in all of this has led me to discern that the Invitation School of Prayer this year must engage the story of the black man while we study and practice contemplative prayer. In his book, Jesus and the Disinherited, Howard Thurman sees the resonances between the oppression of the black man and the oppression of the Jews under the heel of Rome. Quote, Jesus' words were directed to the house of Israel, a minority within the Greco-Roman world, smarting under the loss of status, freedom, and autonomy, haunted by the dream of the restoration of a lost glory and a former greatness. His message focused on the urgency of a radical change in the inner attitude of the people. He recognized fully that out of the heart are the issues of life, and that no external force however great and overwhelming, can at long last destroy a people if it does not first win the victory of the Spirit against them." End quote. I've been trying to discern which biography of a saint we should read in the School of Prayer. Each of us needs to imagine what a transformed life looks like on this earth. We need to pay attention to, to immerse ourselves in, and admire the witness of an enfleshed spirituality, a model of what contemplation in action looks like on the earth. COVID-19 is pointing us to see that the black Christian witness in America is exactly this for us exactly the white church's greatest opportunity to see what it looks like to persevere in faith even while you are a minority in a strange land with little status, freedom, and authority haunted by your former greatness. So this year, we will be reading Howard Thurman's book as well as The Cross and the Lynching Tree by James Cone. We have defined the mission of the invitation as a practice of spiritual direction invigorated by the movements of the Holy Spirit in a prison. I've said that I'm on a mission to serve the church through the prison and that it's not that I bring Jesus to the prison, it's that I discover the Jesus who is already in the prison with my brothers there. Everything else I do as a spiritual director, a podcaster, retreat leader, teacher, all these things are inspired by how my faith is stirred and enlarged in the prison prayer practices. I'm awakening to the truth that this prison spirituality is the same story of the faithful black Christian witness in America. I can't be in the prison with my brothers right now, but I can love them from afar and continue this journey of awakening by putting Father Laird into conversation with James Cone and Ignatius of Loyola in the conversation with Howard Thurman. 
I'm aware that some who have already expressed interest in the School of Prayer this year may be reluctant to add this story of the black man to our journey this year. I'm sorry for the surprise. I'm learning and growing so much each day. If we don't end up with enough people to carry the School of Prayer this year, that will be okay. I'm also aware that publishing these words may affect the invitation and myself personally in troubling ways. I'm already exhausted when I consider November 3 and the possibility of another four years with Donald Trump. Either way, I'm exhausted by the Trumpism that will remain even long after he leaves the White House. Yet I'm deeply inspired by the persistent, faithful witness of black Christians who have persevered under a much longer, much more difficult weight of oppression. When I consider the experience of the faithful black church, I'm humbled and see how shifty and weak my faith can be when I so easily grumble. And now here we are back again at the purpose of God in all of these things, that I may be humbled, emptied, weakened even, and less self-reliant so that I can be filled with Jesus and live each day in and through the Holy Spirit. Amen.